Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Today, we're talking about the Commerce Clause, part of Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution that gives Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. Spoiler alert, a lot of what Congress does today, it does under the Commerce Clause. If you went up to a member of Congress after they just voted on a bill and said, point to the part of the Constitution that gives Congress the authority to do that, and then they pointed to the Commerce Clause, that'd be a pretty safe bet. This is how Congress passed important parts of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's how Congress passed the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act in 2003. It's how it tried to regulate guns in school zones and violence against women in the 1990s. And it was originally under the authority of the Commerce Clause that Congress passed the insurance mandate of the Affordable Care Act, which required people to buy health insurance or pay a fine. Along with Tenth Amendment-based limits on national government power, which we discussed in Episode 18, the Rehnquist Court imposed some modest Commerce Clause-based limitations on national government power as well. In the 1995 case of U.S. v. Lopez, the Supreme Court said a central part of the Gun-Free School Zones Act, I just mentioned, was unconstitutional. Five years later, the Court said the same of the Violence Against Women Act. Those cases then became precedents for the court's most recent major Commerce Clause decision, that Congress didn't have the authority under the Commerce Clause to pass the Affordable Care Act's insurance mandate. If you remember, the insurance mandate was saved only because Chief Justice John Roberts said that it functioned as a tax. You paid your penalty to the IRS, and therefore could be construed as within Congress's power to tax. But significantly, the mandate went beyond Congress's power to regulate commerce, according to Roberts and the four other conservatives on the court. There are always unintended consequences and unforeseen questions that arise from judicial rulings. Here's one. The Republican Congress recently zeroed out the penalty for violating the insurance mandate of the Affordable Care Act. If you don't buy insurance, there's no tax or penalty anymore. But if there's no tax to be paid, then has Congress really exercised its power to tax? Now, a new challenge to the insurance mandate provision of the Affordable Care Act is to say that it's unconstitutional because it's no longer a tax. And if it isn't a tax, then Congress doesn't have the authority to tell you to buy insurance. And without the insurance mandate, without more people buying health insurance, the whole scheme of regulation of health care in the Affordable Care Act falls. At least that's the argument. Twenty states are now asking the Supreme Court to strike down the entire law and another 17 states are arguing in favor of saving the insurance mandate and the Affordable Care Act altogether. Next week on November 10th, the court will hear oral arguments in this interesting, important, and complex case called California versus Texas. And the newest justice, Amy Barrett, will be sitting for that case, and she'll take part in those hearings. We'll come back to the Affordable Care Act and to the challenges to the Gun-Free School Zones Act and the Violence Against Women Act next week. But first, a basic preliminary question. What is commerce? What does it mean for the Constitution to give Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the states? Like a lot of our big constitutional issues, the terms of debate were largely set in the early 19th century in an opinion written by Chief Justice John Marshall. 
Marshall loved to use his opinions as occasions for high-level civics education as a way to shape how the young nation thought about the Constitution. And that happened in the case of Gibbons versus Ogden in 1824. Here's the background of that case. Under state law in New York, a guy named Aaron Ogden had an exclusive right to operate a steamship on the Hudson River. The problem is that Congress passed the Federal Coasting Act in 1793, and under that act, a guy named Thomas Gibbons had a license to operate his steamship on the Hudson River also. But Ogden thinks he has an exclusive right, a monopoly, to operate his steamship, and so he sues Gibbons in New York State Court, and he wins. And then Gibbons appeals to the Supreme Court, saying that federal law trumps state law. If he has a license under federal law to operate his ship in the Hudson, then New York can't do anything about that and can't grant a monopoly on steam navigation to one of its own citizens, he argues. Enter the Supreme Court and the question, does Congress have the authority to regulate navigation on the Hudson River? The river's mainly, but not exclusively, in the state of New York. It originates in upstate New York. It flows down to New York City into the Upper Bay, which is a port for both New York and New Jersey, and then it drains into the Atlantic Ocean. And the answer to the question of whether Congress can regulate navigation on the Hudson depends on what commerce is and what it means to regulate and even what it means to be among the several states or with foreign nations. If you were to open up a copy of Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language from 1768, you would find the dictionary definition of commerce to be this, to exchange one thing for another, trade or traffic. And the verb to commerce means to hold intercourse. And intercourse means either exchange or communication. Johnson didn't list an entry for traffic, but modern dictionaries list as an archaic definition of traffic simply dealings or communication between people. The meaning of the Constitution isn't found in the dictionary, but it's a good place to start if we want to know what the framers and ratifiers would have thought about commerce and what they would have thought they were doing by giving the power to regulate commerce to Congress. They would have thought of commerce as more than just buying and selling things. It also has to do with intercourse, with the dealings or communication of people. And this is the conclusion John Marshall comes to in Gibbons versus Ogden. As Marshall writes, the words are, quote, Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. To ascertain the extent of the power, it becomes necessary to settle the meaning of the word. The attorneys for Ogden thought the word commerce should be limited to buying or selling of commodities, but shouldn't include navigation. Marshall's response is that, quote, this would restrict a general term applicable to many objects to one of its significations. Commerce undoubtedly is traffic, Marshall says, but it's something more. It's intercourse. It describes the commercial intercourse between nations and parts of nations in all its branches and is regulated by prescribing rules for carrying on that intercourse. And intercourse, recall, just meant dealings or communication between people. The power to regulate those dealings, Marshall says, is the power to prescribe the rule by which commerce is to be governed. Marshall thinks navigation on a body of water that goes between two or more states is therefore commerce among the several states. And the only remaining question is an easy one. Is federal law supreme over state law? According to Article 6, it is. And so the federal law here prevails. If someone has a license to operate a steamship on the Hudson, the state can't deny that person a right to navigate on those same waters. Marshall's opinion here set the terms of debate for the Commerce Clause, and it did it in more than just one way. Another key aspect of Marshall's opinion was a distinction between a strict and a liberal construction of the Constitution. Those are his words, not mine. Ogden's attorney said commerce means only trade, but not navigation and they argued for what they called a strict construction of the words of the Constitution. 
But Marshall asked, quote, what do the gentlemen mean by a strict construction? If they contend only against that enlarged construction, which would extend words beyond their natural and obvious import, we might question the application of the term, but should not controvert the principle. If they contend for that narrow construction, which, in support of some theory not to be found in the Constitution, would deny to the government those powers which the words of the grant, as usually understood, import, and which are consistent with the general views and objects of the instrument, for that narrow construction, which would cripple the government and render it unequal to the object for which it is declared to be instituted, and to which the powers given, as fairly understood, render it competent, then we cannot perceive the propriety of this strict construction, nor adopt it as the rule by which the Constitution is to be expounded. What is the purpose of the Constitution? For Marshall, it was the purpose of creating a true national government. Before the creation of the Constitution, he said, our states were completely independent and were connected to each other only in a league. This is the Articles of Confederation. They were, he said, allied sovereigns, but through the Constitution they converted their Congress of Ambassadors into a legislature, empowered to enact laws on the most interesting subjects, the whole character in which the states appear underwent a change, the extent of which must be determined by a fair consideration of the instrument by which that change was effected. The states, Marshall says, are no longer allied sovereigns. The Constitution has created a true national government with powers independent of the states, and that has changed the character of the states themselves. They remain sovereign, but only to exercise those powers that have not been delegated to the national government. And one of those powers delegated to the national government is the power to regulate interstate commerce, a power Marshall thinks should not be construed strictly in a way that artificially limits its application. But Marshall does point to one built-in constitutional limit that remains the subject of debate in our constitutional politics. It is not intended, Marshall writes in Gibbons versus Ogden, to say that these words comprehend that commerce which is completely internal, which is carried on between man and man in a state or between different parts of the same state, and which does not extend to or affect other states. Such a power would be inconvenient and is certainly unnecessary, he concludes. And here Marshall sets the terms of debate about what kinds of things might be truly intrastate, happening within one state rather than interstate, happening among several states. Are there certain homegrown industries, modes of communication, internal traffic or waterways or other things that happen entirely within the borders of a state that don't extend to or even affect other states, as Marshall puts it, such that Congress would have no power to regulate it under the Commerce Clause? Looking at it from a different angle, in our interconnected age marked by instant communication with a national, not to mention a global economy and communicable disease, constant migration into the country and across state borders, is there anything that goes on in one state that does not sooner or later affect other states? But if everything affects commerce among the states at some point, is the Commerce Clause the enumerated power that unravels the whole scheme of enumerated powers? The late Joe Sobrin, a longtime writer for the National Review magazine, used to joke, just to think of what Stalin could have done if he'd only had the Commerce Clause. He was pointing to the difference between a constitutional government of limited enumerated powers and the unlimited powers claimed by dictators such as Joseph Stalin. And the joke made a serious point that understood a certain way Congress's power to regulate commerce could reach into every facet of life because everything ultimately affects the dealings and communication and trade, the commerce, among the people of the United States. And so do the courts wrestling with the meaning of this power and its constitutional limits. We'll turn next. 
Thank you.